Thank you, Pastor John. Indeed, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us working in me, for I surely need him to work in me to be of any benefit to you whatsoever. And then for all of us who are inhabited by this third person of the Trinity to benefit from his work in us, enabling us to understand and sanctifying us by applying that glorious truth, thank you for that prayer. We today are at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, picking up with verse 1, continuing along in our journey of this gospel narrative so faithfully recorded by God's servant of old, Luke the beloved physician, so that we might know who Jesus is. For surely we want to be a people who know Christ Jesus and who therefore are able to make him known. If we're going to make him known, then we have to know him. Not just know about him, but know him. <clears throat> and as our calling is to make him known, we rejoice in knowing that we're the instruments. Broken vessels though we are. These, these broken vessels that carry this treasure. Or as somebody said, we're just a bunch of cracked pots with something valuable inside. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, and when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And so may the Lord bless this reading of his word as we give him praise and thanks. Don Gahagan. Oh, it must have been about 30 years ago. Well, in fact, I remember it was in October of 1996, so it's getting close to 30 years ago. Speaking at a missions conference, Don told about as he served as an aviation missionary in South America, one of those pilots responsible for ferrying missionaries to some of the most remote locations on earth, particularly along that Amazon basin, that longest of all rivers in the world with the greatest volume of water of all rivers in the world. You know, I try to throw in a little trivia so at least you can value at least the information I pass along. One other piece, by the way, did you know that the Missouri River is one mile longer than the Mississippi River? No charge for that. Taking these missionaries and also taking supplies to missionary stations, Don had become what we might call an expert pilot. He had learned to land on those rivers, and there was one particular location that required exceptional piloting skill. You had to land on this one river as it was emptying into the Amazon, which wasn't 
too far from the ocean. And there was this there was this combating of currents so that the only way to land on this particular river was as the water was surging back up the river and creating this great wave, it caused the water to be deep enough and positioned the plane in just the right place that you could land on the back of that wave and literally ride it into your destination and tie up and there you were. So Don was training another pilot. As they were coming into this location, Don was checking with this trainee and saying, do you have it? Do you have it? He said, oh, yeah, I've got this. I've got this. And, and there they were coming down. And sure enough, they saw that wave rising up, making its way up that tributary. Got the plane positioned just in the right place to land on the wave. And the trainee panicked and said, you take it. Don said, I did. And landed the plane. You take it. It reminds me of the time we were traveling up through Virginia and I had two friends who were in the front seat, one driving, the other a passenger. The one who was uh, driving the vehicle had something that had fallen down on the floor and he said to the guy next to him, he said, uh, you take the wheel. And he went down. The guy next to him thought, he said, you help me. And I saw both of their heads go down. Without scaring either of them, I just simply reached up from the back seat and took the wheel. I said, guys, something is not right here. And they both, to this day, still talk about that. And they said, cold sweat pops out on their foreheads. You take it. Here is the moment when the Lord Jesus essentially says to those whom he has called, these twelve disciples who are now to be apostles, those who are sent out, are to take it. Suddenly we realize that Jesus has not only been about the business of instructing them so that they can be more knowledgeable, so that they can know him more fully. It becomes clear that he actually is equipping them that they might carry out the work themselves. It's a disconcerting thing. When responsibility is turned over to us by others who have done it for a long time, who are competent and know what they're doing, you know how intimidating that can be. So he called them together and gave them power and authority. He gave them the ability to perform the tasks that were before them. But he also gave them the right to be able to do it. You know, it's one thing to have an ability. It's another thing to be able to exercise that ability. You might be able to drive a car, but unless you have a license issued from the Department of Motor Vehicles, you don't have the authority to drive the vehicle. That was always so troubling to me when I was young because I I was behind the steering wheel of my grandfather's Jeep truck when I was probably nine years old. We were out in the hayfield picking up hay, so I could drive that truck around all over the hayfield, straight drive. I could take off on a hill better than most people that I was behind with my mother in the car when we would be in town. And I was wondering, why do they get to drive? And I don't. There were good reasons. So you might have the ability, but you don't have the authority. Jesus gave them both the power and the authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And I want you to note here in this text, as we see elsewhere, that the writers of the New Testament draw a sharp distinction between demonic possession and diseases. 
Many a modern commentator and writer blurs the line between those two things, and they even infer that that there was a misunderstanding in the first century. That as Jesus was casting out demons and so forth, what he was really doing was dealing with with um, diseases of the mind and so forth. But the gospel writers understood, as the Spirit gave them knowledge, that there was a distinction to be drawn to have authority over these matters, over these uh, fallen angels, these demons who were under Satan's bidding, and to cure diseases. And he sent them out. Now here's the emphasis. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice the priority of the wording. The priority is on the proclamation of the word. For gospel as becomes apparent down in verse 6. Preaching of the gospel. The proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's their task. That's what Jesus was doing. Remember, that's the emphasis on his ministry throughout scripture. The writers tell us that Jesus went forth proclaiming the kingdom of God. They never rescind that declaration, that piece of information. That's what Christ was doing everywhere he went. Our attention is naturally focused on the miracles. The casting out of demons, the healing, the other things that he did that that so captivate us and make us wonder. But he always had it as a priority to proclaim God's kingdom. That the kingdom of God was coming upon the earth. He was the means by which that kingdom was coming through his perfect life and ultimately through his death and resurrection. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Everything is changing. This is... uh, You know, today we use fancy phrases, don't we? Paradigm shift. Still not sure I understand that phrase. I'm a simple-minded person. First time I heard it, I thought, I've got a paradigm in my pocket. (laughs) Everything is changing. The kingdom of God is coming. It's here. And to heal. In order to provide authentication of the message that they were proclaiming, they were able to perform these signs so that people could say, hey, you know, they're not just saying things. I mean, anybody can say things. Snake oil salesmen have made a good living through the years of making all kinds of claims about various things, whether it's, you know, the old-timey type who came into town selling stuff out of a bottle or whether they're trying to sell you some other product today through their telephone calls we try to avoid. All kinds of claims can be made. But they had authenticating evidence that they were from God. Who else, after all, could heal diseases and cast out demons? Who else could do that except those who had been sent by God? And they were to undertake all of this by faith. Take nothing for your journey. Now, in other places, it says they could take a staff we would infer from this that they were not to take any more than a staff. There was no taking of two. Or if this perhaps was another instance when the Lord Jesus said, no, don't take any staff, but the point is the same. They were to take no more than was absolutely necessary. They weren't even to, you know, to pack extra food. The first mission trip we took, as I've told you before, was to Romania. At least Kathy and I were married. She had had one previous, but we don't count that one. After we were married, that was the first one. She had been to Jamaica. I'm just kidding. And, uh, you know, we're going to Romania. We didn't know what they 
eight in Romania. We didn't know what to prepare for, and so we were wondering what to do. And You know, Lance Crackers, they can get you through just about anything. They got me through college. I'm not advertising for any particular product, but I'm telling you, those little peanut butter crackers with a Mountain Dew, that's what got me through every day of, of schooling at Western Carolina University. So we thought peanut butter and crackers, that's always a good fallback. So we made sure that we had plenty. Jesus said, don't take any Lance crackers. No peanut butter sandwiches. You've got to go by faith. This was an opportunity for them to learn. He's taking the training wheels off. And so they were to go. No bread, no money. Don't even take two tunics. What? That, that garment that was the most underneath garment of all that extended down to the feet. That had, that's what held all the rest of the clothing together and gave it any legitimacy whatsoever. You know, just, just take one. And by the way, wherever you go, stay there and don't depart. Now, there were cultural reasons for that. If you were staying with somebody and you left their home before you were finished in that town, that would be a very offensive thing. And, of course, you could realize that would detract from the message you were trying to proclaim. So, so go and stay there. But all of this was to be undertaken by faith. So they were calling people to faith, but they had to exercise faith themselves. And that's a good lesson for all of us who are involved in ministry. It's not simply that we are calling on other people to trust in the Lord Jesus, to put their faith in Him, but as we undertake ministry, we have to have faith. Believing that God will provide for us, give us words to speak, give us the provisions that we need. Well, very quickly, the Lord equips those he calls and sends. He provides what's needed. He doesn't look down as it were and says, well, that one's got plenty. He's got the talent. He's got the resources. I'm going to call that one. No, he calls the person and then he equips him or her. You need to know that. I need to remember that. He called them together, gave them power and authority, gave them what was necessary to carry out the work. It reminds us of what the Lord did for Moses in Exodus chapter 4. As God was calling Moses to send him back to Egypt to be the one who would rescue his people from the clutches of Pharaoh. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Here he's giving him this position that's going to require the ability to articulate and to speak. Moses said, I can't do it. He says, literally, I've got a heavy mouth. We still don't know exactly what that means in Hebrew. Dr. Pratt, maybe you do, and you can come up and give us an explanation. But read that, and we still don't know what he's saying, but in some way or another he's saying, I'm not up to the job. You've got the wrong person, in essence. And a lesson comes. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. By the way, end of sentence, period. What excuse do we offer? Dr. D. James Kennedy, I remember so eloquently years ago telling the story, and I can remember, I don't remember the place in Fort Lauderdale, but we were at a little restaurant in a hotel, and I can remember looking out the window at night, and the light was enough that I could see waves coming in, and he was speaking to us at an evangelism explosion clinic, and he told a story about seeing on a film years before, a film that Bob Pierce, who started uh, World Vision, 
was showing, and back in the 1950s, I suppose, a black and white film, it was showing Bob Pierce and others who were visiting a leprosarium in, in somewhere in the Koreas. And um, they went into this place, and there were people who were suffering from this, this terrible disease that we now call Hansen's disease, leprosy, and people in various stages of this, uh, of this malady. And finally, they went to that area of the hospital where the worst of the worst patients are. And there was one man in particular who was there in the very advanced stages of this disease. He was bedfast. He could not get up. He, he had lost his sight. He had lost the ability to speak. He couldn't even hear. And he had fingers that were gone because of the progression of that disease. But Dr. Kennedy said he could still do one thing. He could feel And he felt the vibrations from the floor through his bed as people were approaching him. And he struggled with all of his might to get himself up on one elbow. And he raised his fingerless hand as best he could. And with a toothless smile, he smiled and pointed toward heaven. He said the people who were with him explained that the man had been a, and was, a very devoted Christian. He had always been very intent on witnessing the people when they visited him. And now, in the progressed stages of that disease, he still was doing what he could to bear witness to his Savior. It reminds me of the last visit I had with my childhood pastor, Fred Murphy, when he was in the hospital in Gastonia. He, um, he had a bar over his bed with one of those handles where you could pull yourself up if you needed assistance. And there was a post-it note up there that said, God loves you. Pastor Murphy said he was afraid he would get to the place where he couldn't talk and he still wanted people to know that God loves them. You know, I was thinking, what's my excuse? If God is the one who equips us, if he's the one who gives us what's necessary to carry out the work, what excuse do any of us have? The Lord sends out disciples to preach the gospel and alleviate suffering. Why do we try to distinguish the way we do between those two things? When I was speaking to MTW missionaries a couple of years ago, I said, you know, if you put gospel ministry on a graph and you distinguish between the actual proclamation of the gospel and deeds of mercy you know doing acts of kindness and necessary things that people need whether it's putting a roof on a house or feeding them or taking care of them you know if you charted those two things and let's say you put the proclamation ministry in red and and the deeds of mercy in, in blue and graphed them what should the graph look like and one said, well, you want them to track right together on the graph. I said, yeah, in fact, I said, it shouldn't be red and blue at all. It ought to be one graph and it ought to be purple because those things go together. And again, I'm telling nobody's picked up on my illustration because it's not that brilliant. But that's just the way my mind works. These things should always go together. We shouldn't be saying, well, are you about sharing the gospel with people or about helping them? Well, it ought to be about sharing the gospel with people and helping them. You're going to build a hospital for people in an area where they need medical care. By all means, tell them why you're doing it. As uh, one person said to me in Mexico one time, we know why you gringos are here. We've been told you love Jesus. 
That's the reason. We do for them the healing, the meeting of those needs. But together with that goes the proclamation of the gospel. So they went forth preaching, alleviating suffering. He sent them out to proclaim the, proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I'm sorry the reference is omitted from your outline. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. That lengthy passage that's there when Jesus, in teaching those who were with him, speaks of that day when the goats and the sheep will be separated, the unbelievers on the left, the believers on the right. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. You know the passage. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous answer, How? What are you talking about? That's my paraphrase. When did we do these things? Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So do you see how we cannot de-emphasize this aspect of Christian ministry? That's my point. No need to belabor it. It goes together. Yes, we have to preach the gospel. We need to proclaim Jesus. We need to be a people who are from everywhere, going everywhere, telling everyone about Christ. But we also need to be prepared and be engaged in the meeting of needs. That's why people are on the ground right now in that fire-ravaged place called Maui. Horrendous circumstances. And that's why Christians are the first to show up so often in all other kinds of places. They're ready to offer a helping hand and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus because they get it, knowing that these things go together. And so as they went forth and did these things, of course, there's a response. There's a great stirring up. There's all kinds of people who are wondering about what's going on. But on the other hand... As Jesus commands all to trust in him, he prepares us to face unbelief. What about when you enter a place and they don't receive you? They don't listen to you. Leave and shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This was a cultural thing that the Jews typically did when they were leaving a Gentile village. In fact, sometimes they would even shake their clothes out, the commentators tell us, lest they not only render themselves unclean, but accidentally... Render somebody else unclean. So when leaving a Gentile village, they would practice this. But Jesus makes a distinction. He doesn't speak of it in terms of Gentiles versus Jews. He speaks in terms of unbelief. When you leave a place where you're not received, that is, they respond not by faith, but by unbelief. Shake that dust off of your feet. So suddenly, the distinction is not between Jew and Gentile. It's between those who believe and those who don't believe. And we need to be prepared because there are many who will not believe the message. He prepares us also, by the way, for suffering. It runs contrary to much preaching that's offered today, but it's true. Jesus didn't say, if they persecute you, but when. 
remember that. So they were to do that in testimony against that location. But the other response, of course, is interesting as they depart. They do it. They carry out the task. They go everywhere in those villages preaching the gospel, healing everywhere. The power and authority proved to be authentic. Imagine that. This isn't Christ performing these miracles, but rather Christ through his apostles performing these works as he continues to work and minister through his vessels and instruments in our day. It's astounding, isn't it, to think that any of us could be an instrument in our Lord's hands to accomplish his work? Herod, the great leader, Tetrarch here, said to be a king elsewhere. Both titles are perfectly legitimate. His authority was derived from the Roman Empire, so he wasn't a king in his own right. He's there by appointment, therefore a tetrarch, technically. He's a footnote. People would have thought his opinion would be the one that mattered the most. But in the end, how much value do we attach to it? We simply see and learn the lesson here that all kinds of responses can be expected when the work of the Lord Jesus is carried out. One response is faith. That's what we want. But there will also be all kinds of others offering all kinds of opinions. Some of them strange. All of them curious. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what's going on. This is the first time in Luke, by the way, that we find out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. John the Baptist clearly is dead, but who is this guy? Some people think Elijah because Elijah had been caught up in the heavens in that chariot of fire with horses, as Rachel read for us. Maybe one of the other prophets. Who is this? All kinds of questions. Not unlike today. All of the people who are offering every opinion under the sun, from articles they write in journals to entire multi-volume works of literature, to documentaries on television, all kinds of notions and ideas and opinions about Jesus. He is God's beloved son. But here Herod is an unbelief trying to figure out what's going on. He wanted to see him. Oh, he got to see him. He passed sentence on him, sending him back to Pilate on that day, which is yet in the future in our text. But ultimately, he and all others have are or will see Christ. All will see him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But notice, that even though he's a man of great power in the eyes of the world, it's just an incidental notation here to our text. The real information that matters is that the work of the kingdom of God is going forth that people have been transformed by the gospel and the evidence of that manifested through this work of healing. And so today, how are we to respond? All the debate, all the discussion, all the skeptics, all of the opinions swirling around. What do we do? We keep doing what the Lord has sent us to do. He's called us forth to proclaim the kingdom, to go forth as we proclaim that kingdom and alleviate suffering. Let them discuss in their palaces whatever they discuss. The work of God's kingdom is going forth.
That's what matters. I know it's discouraging. I have my moments of discouragement. I may have shared with you our daughter-in-law Faith when she was here recently interviewed me to be a part of her podcast. One of the questions she had for me from one of her viewers was, do you ever have doubts? And uh, I jokingly said, oh no, I'm never in doubt, but I'm not always right. I said, but of course I have doubts. Of course I have doubts. Sometimes it gets to me too. Listening to all these opinions by people I know, by things that come by way of my reading or what I see from the media. Is this really true? What are you doing anyway? I can remember the head of the history department at Western Carolina saying to me, well, several of us in the history department thought about being ministers at one time, but, you know, look at what we can do here. And I looked around and I thought, good for you, but this is not for me. I'm not going because I want to. I'm in this because I believe God is calling me. And yet the doubts rise. But who else has the power and authority? Where else can we go? Nobody else has been raised from the dead. Nobody else is offering to us what Jesus offers and backs it up by his perfect life, by that death on the cross and by that glorious resurrection. No one else can give us what Christ offers. Where else are you going to go? Who's going to provide for you? Even a small fraction of what Jesus offers. There's nowhere else to go. There is no one else. And so we continue on our pathway to know Christ and to make him known. And if he chooses to teach us by conducting on-the-job training, then that's the way it works. You take it. But he's with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because Christ himself, by means of the Spirit, is not leaving us to our own devices. He's right here. And by his powerful presence, we carry out his work for his glory. Isn't that a privilege? You may look at your resume and think, well, I never really attained what I wanted to attain. Hey, let me tell you something. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus. You're a servant of the Most High God. You're counted as His child. and His love has been lavished upon you. His grace has been granted to you in abundance. And the Lord Jesus Christ calls you a co-heir. And even His own. So church, we have a privilege together as we worship and as we go forth. We are proclaiming nothing less than Jesus Christ to the world. Bless His name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks. Confessing and acknowledging there's no way we could exhaust the wonderful treasure in this one text, let alone all of Scripture. But Father, at least today we trust we have delved enough into these wonderful truths that you will effect the change necessary in each of us to encourage, strengthen, and embolden us. Or otherwise, Father, to open eyes that have to this point been blinded, that by the Holy Spirit, someone perhaps has been or will be born again because of this powerful word of yours, knowing the work is yours from first to last. 
any power exercised on this earth for good to accomplish the transformation of sinners surely is the work of our Lord Jesus through those called, gifted, and equipped by him. So, Father, we commit it to you, praying that all glory, honor, and praise will be yours always. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our God reigns. Let's stand to our feet and sing in church as we worship Him.
And you know, hearing you sing that just now, I believe it. So may the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.